saint almost, the trouble with Christians. You ever have trouble with Christians? Because they're sort of, tr- sort of a troubled or troublesome group. No, not so much. Never? You never have trouble with Christians? You haven't met the ones I know. Oh, wait, you are the ones I know. What am I saying? So, sorry. So we're doing this series called Saint Almost. It's all this idea that Paul writes this letter called the letter, the first letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians in the scriptures, and we're just kind of walking through that letter. And he writes this letter because the church at Corinth was troubled by Christians because we're followers of Christ and we're redeemed by Christ, but we're not perfect yet. In fact, for most of us, we're a long, long ways from perfect. And so we're just trying to walk through this letter together and figure out how it lands on us and how it relates to us and what does God want to say to us through this, okay? So it's interesting because when you think about, when I think about Christians who are not quite perfect, I still have some followers of Christ that I really highly look up to and respect amazingly. They are sort of heroes of faith to me. And I don't know if in your life as a Christ follower, you've got people that are heroes of faith for you. Billy Graham is one of those for me. Here's a man who's in his 90s now, has lived a life faithfully for Christ for all those decades, has been preaching the gospel clearly, simply, faithfully for all those decades to literally millions of people. And I just go, that guy is a hero of faith. Amazing. Closer to home, I had lunch with a hero of faith of mine uh, this last week. Kent Carlson's the pastor of Oak Hills Church down the block, and we got to have lunch together. We've been friends for 25 years or something. We pray together, and I just watch him, and they're going to celebrate their 30th anniversary as a church coming up this fall. And I'm like, you know what? There's a guy who has been a hero of faith, faithful, uh, following Christ with everything he has for all this time. I love that. Um, Hero of faith. Uh, There's a couple in our church who have been heroes of faith to mine, Don and Faye McFarland. And uh, many of you know them. They've helped many of you. Uh, Some of you may not have heard yet uh, that Don passed away yesterday. Um, Went straight to heaven because he's a saint. Saint almost, to be sure, but a saint. And I look at uh, this man's life and I go, he just... He just lived this passionate, God-honoring, faith-filled, faithful life. Not a hero in terms of, you know, like big, loud, noisy things, but a really solid life, a long way straight in the same direction. That's a hero of faith. There are women on my heroes of faith list. Mother Teresa, though she's been gone for over a decade now, uh, Mother Teresa was a hero of faith of mine. She did two things amazingly well. She loved Jesus, and she loved the people that Jesus told her to love. And she was remarkable. Hero of faith. We have heroes of faith among us uh, here at Lakeside, or who have gone out from us at Lakeside. We, you, many of you know Mary Beth Sexton. We sent some of our next 10 resources, our first fruits offering to Mary Beth in Malawi. Here's a woman who just gave up what she had here in America. She said, I'm going to Africa, and I'm going to bring the good news of Jesus to children in Africa. And she just gave it up here and left and did that. Wow, that's amazing to me. That's just, that's just remarkable faith to me. And she's in my hero's book. 
Um, Salwa Kasabian is a lakesider who's still among us. She was here last night. I got to call her out and embarrass her a little bit because she really wouldn't want me to say this, but she's a hero of faith to me. She's a woman who is in probably her own description, and I could call her this, a saint almost. She had some things that God was telling her to do, and she's like, nuh-uh. You ever have that happen in your life? And, uh, and yet God kept knocking on her door, and, and he said, uh-huh. And she said, oh, uh-huh, okay. And she's done what God's asked her to do, and she's humble, which is required of heroes of faith. She's humble, she's a servant of Christ, and she's faithfully doing the things that he has asked her to do. Hero of faith. It's interesting for me to put women into my heroes of faith list because the church hasn't always done a great job in terms of how we relate to women in the church. We've been saying almost sometimes when it comes to our relation as a church, as the church, in, in terms of our relationship with women and not always knowing how to treat them and what kind of roles, you know, People can have in the church. Women can have in the church. And in our culture, in our generation, a lot of people scratch their heads and go, I don't really get that. But we look at Scripture and we say, hey, we, we take the Bible seriously. We want to understand it. We want to live this thing out. So let's figure out what it says and then let's live it out. But we haven't always done that all that well when it comes to women's relationships, women's issues in the church. And sometimes, it's, sometimes, frankly, it's confusing. Sometimes the, the process of interpreting the scriptures and understanding how to relate to them is a little confusing because sometimes when, at, at face value, some of these passages in the scriptures look contradictory to one another. Like there's this place in 1 Timothy chapter 3 where Paul says, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. And that seems pretty clear until you come to Galatians chapter 3. And, and Paul says, look, from now on in Christ, there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. We're all one in Christ. And you take those together, you jumble them together, and sometimes we get confused about how do we treat women in churches, in the church. And I'd like to see us do better. As I walk through the scriptures, in fact, I saw this as I was reading through the Songs of Ascent yesterday. I saw this again. There's a phrase in the, one of the Songs of Ascent that says, We have full redemption. Through the Redeemer that God has sent to us, we have full redemption. All of us have full redemption. All of us who believe in Christ have full redemption. So here's the deal. Here's kind of the statement that I would believe in. Faith in Jesus Christ brings full redemption for everyone who believes. And faith in Jesus Christ brings full redemption for every woman who believes. That means full redemption. That means full participation. That means full freedom. That means full opportunity. Full redemption. And as a church, I want us to figure out together, how do we live that out? What does that look like for us? How do we do that in a way that honors one another and in a way that honors God who gave us his scriptures, who gave us his church, who put us into that and said, here, I want you to live in this according to my heart. And so when we come today to 1 Corinthians chapters 11 through 14, we're coming to a passage, two passages that focus on women. 
I told you last week we're going to talk about these, three cha- these four chapters for the next three weekends. So last weekend, this weekend, next weekend, it's all 1 Corinthians 11 through 14. And it's all about worship. This is the longest passage in the New Testament that deals with worship. And everything in here deals with worship. And he taught, he's got these two passages that talk about women and how do women relate to the whole worship gathering in the church. And so, you, ladies, you can go, well, how come he doesn't tell the men how to do it? It's like, well, it's because they had, they had trouble figuring out what to do with the redemption that God offers to women. And so he writes these passages. And so what I want to do is just take some time together and look through these passages of Scripture and see what God has to say. Now, there are some harsh realities in these stories, in these parts of the letter that he writes. He talks about an issue of headship, which we'll come to in a minute. He talks about, he talks about women being quiet in church. I think we'll start with that one. Because <laughs> frankly, it's the easier of the two to talk about. So you're like, if you haven't read these, you're like, whoa, where are we going with this? Okay, so, so here's the deal. And some of you might be guests today at Lakeside. You're like, your first time coming into Lakeside. You don't know what we're about, what we do. Or maybe you're brand new, kind of thinking about Jesus or thinking about the scriptures and really don't know what to do with it. And you're going, like, well, are you guys still talking about this stuff? It's like, we take the Bible very seriously. We believe this book is God's word to us. And when he writes about things, we have to do everything we can to figure out what he's talking about. It's on us by God's grace and through his spirit to figure out what he's saying to us. And so that's what we're going to do. So let's look at the first one or the last one first. And uh, it's over in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, starting at verse 34. And let me read this and we'll talk about it and see if we can figure this out. 1 Corinthians 14, 34, Paul says this, Women should be silent in the churches. They're not allowed to speak, but must be in submission as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. Now, my first thought is all the women out there are sitting there going, well, then as a man, why are you standing up there telling us about this? I'm going to talk about women in the church, like feel a little out of place here. In fact, someone came in, a good friend of mine came in this morning and said, um, Hey, I know you're talking about women because you let us know last week you're going to be talking about women today. I I want you to know before you ever start, you're wrong. (laughs) Okay, I accept that, um, but let's just see if we can figure this out anyway and see how this goes, all right? So um, this is a worship passage. He's talking about what goes on in the worship service. Now, one of the things you have to grasp before you understand what he's talking about here is you have to understand how they set up their worship experiences as a church in the first century. See, they took their worship practices, their worship experience from the synagogue and wrapped it right into the church. The very first followers of Jesus were all Jewish. And so they took what they did in their Jewish worship services in their synagogue where they gathered. That was their version of church. They took what they were doing in those synagogues and they brought it into their church worship gathering. The early church didn't have buildings. They didn't have synagogues to meet in. They didn't have churches or auditoriums or sanctuaries to be able to meet in. They met in people's homes or other places where they could get some space to meet. But they used the format and the style and the approach that they used in the synagogues. And then when Gentiles came in, they just said, okay, well, that's what they do, so let's let's." just do that. And so the liturgy was the same as what they followed in the synagogue, and the seating arrangement was the same as they followed in the synagogue. Now, a liturgy just simply means the agenda of worship. We follow a liturgy here at Lakeside Church. 
Every church follows a liturgy, a form of worship, right? So we've, we sort of follow a form. You pretty much know when you walk in, someone's going to shake your hand. Someone's going to give you coffee if you want it. You're going to come into the, inside the auditorium. They're going to make you stand up, sing songs. You can raise your hands if you want. You don't have to if you don't want to. But, there's, you know, we kind of sing. We, and then some guy comes up and talks about Easter and gives you the sign, you know, talks about lakeside life and what's going on, things like that. Then we have a little bumper video with organ music, and that's to get people ready in the block for the family room that's coming at 1045. So we do all that. And then the guy comes up to talk talk at you, to you, with you. And then we sing one more song, we go out. That's, that's sort of the liturgy. You recognize it? Okay, that's what we do. So let's, you know, that's what it is. Let's acknowledge it. That's what we do. That's the liturgy. In the first century church, they took the liturgy from the synagogue. They also took the seating chart. Now, we don't have a seating chart. I mean, you can come sit wherever you want. Most of you sit in the same place week by week, so you think there's a seating chart. But in <laughs> every church does it. I don't know. They all do it. You all do it. So it's, I do the same thing, so it's all cool. So, but in their world, they, you know, we, we mix it up. You can sit, if you're married, you can sit together as a couple. If you've got a family, you can bring your whole family. If you want to sit with your small group, that's fine. And you can sit wherever in the auditorium you, you choose to sit. That's fine. But in their culture, what they found and brought over from the synagogue was the men sat in front, the women sat in back. And it wasn't good or bad. It's just how they did it. In fact, the women sat in back. And who was with the women? Children. Right? So you had the men and the women and the children. And every now and then they have a speaker come into the church or what happened in the synagogue as well. They have a speaker come in and he wasn't trained and coached in, like, in terms of how to do public speaking. And so when he got up, he would just kind of just talk like this a little bit. And he would just be teaching really good stuff, but just kind of mumble in his breath, under his breath and really would talk too fast and wouldn't look up. And after a while, some of those women in the back would say, what did he say? Because he couldn't get it. So like they're punching their girlfriends. Like, what did he say? I didn't, I didn't get that part. So then the girlfriend's like, well, I got to help her out. So she starts talking, always talking louder than the guy up front's talking, right? So Because you got to make sure they hear and understand. So now they're talking in the back. And after a while, one of them thumps one of the children because they're making too much noise. And all this is going on. And Paul addresses that situation. And he says to the women, I want you to be quiet in church. Literally, the word that he uses for be quiet or be silent is a word that could be translated shush. Aren't you glad they didn't put that that in the English Bible, ladies? Women, shush in church. And all the deal is he's not saying that they cannot speak. We'll see that in a minute. He assumed that they would be speaking. He assumed that they would be teaching and praying and leading in public. He assumed all that, so he's not talking about that. He's just saying Stop being disruptive in the back of the church because you're disturbing the whole flow. If you want to ask anything, ask your husband when he gets home because he heard because he was sitting in the front. Just don't be disruptive. And in fact, he finishes that whole passage by saying this, but everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way. That's how he says it wraps up in the church. Make sure it's done in a fitting and orderly way. And that's the model, even today. It's like, well, I want to make sure that when we're together in church, having our worship gathering, let's make sure we do it in a fitting and orderly way. All right? Can we go on to the harder one? <laughs> All right, let's do that. Let's go, to, uh, let's go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And I want to read for you verses 1 to 16. I want to read the whole passage first and then go back and talk about it. So be patient. It's kind of a long passage. 
But let me read this, and you can follow along. If you have your Bible there, by the way, we're 1 Corinthians chapter 11, starting at verse 1. Here's what the Apostle Paul says to the whole church. Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. I praise you for remembering me in everything and for holding to the traditions just as I pass them on to you. But I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head uncovered dishonors his head. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is the same as having her head shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, she might as well have her hair cut off. But if it is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, then she should cover her head. Man ought not to cover his head, since he's the image and glory of God. But the woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, but woman came from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. It is for this reason that a woman ought to have authority over her own head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman, but everything comes from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it's a disgrace to him, but that if a woman has long hair, it is her glory? For long hair is given to her as a covering. If anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice, nor do the churches of God. And if you're paying attention right about now, you're going, what? What are you talking about? Okay, so I get it. And again, if you're a guest and you're like, this, I've never read the Bible, but that, you know, is that what we're jumping in? For, that, for those of you, that's the first passage you read in the Bible, read more. Okay, because there's other stuff in there. And I, and I get it if you're going, I don't have a clue what you're talking about. Or even why you're talking about it. Let's just go back and think about this for a minute. First thing, let's talk about what Paul is not saying. Number one, Paul is not saying women should wear hats. You know, like the royals do when they go to one of those weddings? You know, he is not saying, women, you have to wear a hat. There was a generation in our culture 60, 70, 80 years ago when a woman would not show up to church without wearing a hat because they wanted to be faithful to the Scripture that said you have to cover your head. But he's not talking about hats. He's talking about veils. That's the head covering of the first century. It would have been a veil. It's like, hide your head, cover your face, wear a veil. That's what he's talking about. He's not, he's not talking about wearing hats. Ladies, you can if you want. You don't have to if you don't want to. Your choice. What is he also not saying? He's also not saying, he is not saying that a woman can't preach in the church. He assumes it. In fact, in verse 5, he says, when a woman prays or prophesies without her head covered, it's a disgrace. And so he's saying, I, I expect this is going to happen. There are going to be women in your church who are going to stand up in front of the church, and they're going to lead the church in prayer publicly, right up front. When that happens, he says, they need to have their head covered. He said, there's going to be women who prophesy. That word can be translated to preach or proclaim or to admonish or to teach. 
He says, there are going to be women who prophesy. There's going to be women who preach. And when they do, they ought to have their head covered. He's not saying that women can't preach in the church. He assumes that they will. He just wants it to be done in a fitting and orderly way. Here's what he's saying. When she prays in public, when she leads in prayer, when she leads by preaching, make sure her head is covered. Why? Two reasons, I think, that come from this passage. Maybe there's more, but here's two. There's a theological reason for what he's describing, and there's a cultural reason for what he's describing. Let's consider their culture first and then see how that relates to us. Right? There's a cultural issue. The, the church in Corinth suffered under the culture of their community, which was a culture primarily of shame. Pastor Sean brought this in when he introduced the whole St. Almost series. He talked about in, in Corinth there was this culture of status. And if you had some ability to communicate, if you had some skill in rhetoric, you had the ability to get people to follow after you, you, you gained status. But in that culture, very few people got status. Most people lived in a culture of shame. And shame is that sense that I am not worth what God says I'm worth. That's the bottom line of shame. I am not worth what God says I'm worth. God says I am worth a son to him. God says that I and you, male or female, are worth God's son. You are worth the life of his son. That makes you the most precious commodity in the universe. Shame says, I am not worth what God says I'm worth. And a whole lot of us live with shame in our lives. And a whole lot of people in Corinth lived with shame. They lived in a culture of shame. First issue when you come to this passage is a cultural issue. Now, some people would say, well, Pastor Brad, you, time out. You can't interpret the Bible by saying, well, this one's just cultural, so we're not going to do it. It's a cultural thing. It just happened back then, not now. It doesn't relate to us, so we're not going to do it. You can't, you can't interpret the Bible from a cultural perspective. I'm like, well, you already have. Every person in the room here, every Christ follower in the room has already decided to interpret this passage culturally. Or every person in the room has decided already to disobey it. Because look around, how many veils do you see? We've already decided to interpret it culturally. We've already decided that there was a culture back there that did one thing. Our culture is different, so we do it different. Or we've all decided just to disobey it. I don't think that's true. I know too many of your hearts would say, I want to do whatever God calls me to do. So we've already decided that there's something cultural that's different between then and now, and I just want to help us understand what that is. Let's understand the cultural issue. See, the culture in Corinth, this culture of shame, is a culture where there were a lot of pagan temples. These pagan temples, temp major temples, temples to Apollo, temple, a temple to... Um, 
a temple to Poseidon, a temple to Hermes, a temple to Aphrodite. There's all these temples there in, in Corinth. And the temple of Aphrodite was the one on the highest part of the mountain. The other temples were in town. The temple of Aphrodite, that's the temple of Apollo in the front. It's the temple of Aphrodite up on the Acropolis back in the back. It's 1,700 feet above the valley floor where the city of Corinth was. Tradition says that in that temple on the top of the mountain, there were a 1,000 priestesses of the goddess Aphrodite. Aphrodite was the goddess of love and beauty and pleasure and childbirth, procreation. And so when a man decided, it's about time to have some children in our family, he'd go up to the temple of Aphrodite to worship. When he came, he brought some money to pay one of the priestesses so he could have sex with her. That's how their worship program was. They didn't come in and sing some songs. They didn't do our liturgy. Their liturgy was somewhat different. Are we together? So were they. You understand what we're talking about. So they had these priestesses, a thousand of them, and they were temple prostitutes. And to come in and to worship Aphrodite, the goddess of love and the goddess of beauty and the goddess of procreation, you had sex with a prostitute. The prostitutes had their heads shaved. The, the, man, the men who ran the temple of Aphrodite, they shaved the heads of the young girls who had been sold, in most cases by their parents, into sexual slavery in that temple to be able to honor Aphrodite and to be able to gain blessing from her. And these men who ran the temple, they shaved the heads of these young girls because takes a long time for hair to grow back. And so if a girl escaped from the temple, everyone would know she's a sex slave and they would bring her back. It was a religion that fostered a culture of shame. The priests, the priestesses in this religion lived in a religion of shame. Paul says, don't be like them in your worship. Now, some of, those, some of those prostitutes, some of those priestesses of Aphrodite were starting to come to faith in Jesus. And some of the men who would visit the temple were starting to come to faith in Jesus. And they were all aware of that part of the system because they all came out of the, except for the Jewish believers, they all came out of that pagan system. Paul said, don't bring that shame into the church when you worship. Don't be like them. See, The gospel is designed to set us free from shame. One of the great gifts that Jesus gave us is the gift to be able to live like we are worth what God says we are worth. Ladies, God wants you to live like you are worth what he says you are worth. So don't bring a culture of shame into the church, into the worship, he says. Now, there was another group of women in Corinth, not prostitutes, not sex slaves per se, not owned by anyone. In fact, they were a group of unmarried women, not attached to a husband, they were called hetaira, or het, plural, hetairai. 
And the women who were part of the Hetairai group, they were trained in the arts, they were trained in humanities, they were trained in conversation and politics and economics. They had all this experience, much, very much unlike the women who grew up and got married. They didn't get a lot of education. They didn't get a lot of training. But this group, for some reason, they were sort of singled out and they got training, got education. And the noblemen and the princes and the political leaders in those, in those communities like Corinth, they would have these hetairai come in and they would join in the political conversation. When men were sitting around the table and having dialogue about politics, the hetairai got in on the conversation. When men would sit around and talk about economics, the hetairai women got involved in those conversations. They were invited and welcomed in by those men because they were good at conversing in male-oriented topics. But, they also served as escorts to those men with all the things that come with being an escort. And so a nobleman would have a wife, but he would also have a hetaira on the side somewhere, a mistress on the side somewhere, someone that he could bring in being confident that she wasn't married to anybody, she didn't have any attachments like that, but she had skill in conversing in male-oriented topics. And so he'd bring her in as his escort to a meeting, to a banquet, to a party, whatever those things were. Because the Hittirai were not connected to a man through marriage, they didn't wear a veil, which was a sign of uh, respect and honor to, their, to someone's husband. They didn't wear the veil, but they didn't have their heads shaved because they weren't prostitutes. They were different, so they just wore their own long hair but they were part of a culture of shame. And so Paul says to the women in Corinth, wear a veil, ladies. Don't bring a culture of shame into the church unless you think it's okay to have your head covered. I mean, your head shaved. And they would say, no, no, no. That would have cultural significance in our community. I can't have my head shaved. Of course not, he would say. So wear a veil. Or you just want to wear your long hair as your own covering? You could do that if you're contentious about it, but then you would just look like a hetaira, a woman on the side, a woman of shame. He said, I don't want you to be like that. So ladies here at Lakeside, just go to, go to Macy's and buy a veil. <laughs> would you? Just save us a lot of shame in the church. Wouldn't that be helpful? No, it wouldn't be helpful at all because our culture would think you odd. Or they'd think you were a Muslim because that's who wears veils. They They wouldn't get it in our culture. It wouldn't be a sign of respect. It wouldn't be a sign of honor. It wouldn't be a sign of anything, just oddness. That's why we don't expect women to wear a veil in our church because it's not part of the culture. We know that you are released from shame. We know that God values you highly. So we don't expect you to follow that cultural rule. Listen, the interpretation today is the same as the interpretation would have been 2,000 years ago. But the application has changed because culture has changed. The interpretation is the same. The application is different because of culture and how it shifts. Now, there's also a theological reason for what he says. 
So you go back to 1 Corinthians 11, and you kind of walk through that passage. You come to verse 3, and he makes this statement. But I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. And you end up going into this whole headship thing. So here's a theological issue. you got this idea of head. And a lot of times we get to that part, and the men go, Oh, 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 I know what that means. I'm the head, woman. You know, right? I'm like, I'm in charge. You're not. Deal with it. That's what God says. I'm the head. Well, that's what God says, but that's not the function that God is calling out. When you come to the word head, there are various ways to understand the word. Obviously, one is what sits on top of the shoulders. What's in charge? Another way that this word is used, and I think this is how it's used here, is it's the word that means the source of something. Like the source of a river, the head of a stream. It's what it comes from. And later on in verse 8, I think it is, Paul says, because man didn't come from woman, woman came from man. He's referring back to Genesis chapter 2. He's saying the man was created by God and the woman was created from the man. It's the source. He's the head. We sometimes get this view theologically. We go, well, in the Bible, there's this chain of command. There's this chain of authority like God to Christ to men to women to children or something. I don't think that's the nature of Scripture. The nature of the New Testament says if there's a chain of anything, there's a chain of honor. There's a chain of honor from children to women to men to Christ to God. It's voluntary, which... Honor must be to be honor. Without it being voluntary, it's never honor. It's coercion. See, the gospel frees us from shame, and the gospel frees us to honor. And in our relationships together as a church, God wants to see us practice honor. For them, he said, this looks like, ladies, when you're going to get up to lead the church in prayer, put a veil on because that's a subject of honor for your husband so that the rest of the group doesn't look at your wife and go, wow, she's a hetaira on the side. It's It's a practice of honor. He says, in the church of Jesus Christ, let's create a culture of honoring one another. Honoring Christ, honoring God, honoring the human beings among us. Honor. So when a woman stands up at church to lead us in prayer, we honor her. How? By following along with that prayer with amazing grace and humility. Knowing that God has gifted that woman or that man, to lead in prayer. When someone stands up to preach God's word and God's heart, we honor that person, male or female. How do we do that? By listening with amazing grace and humility toward that person. To say, God, what do you want to teach me through that person today? Whether they're male or female. One of the gifts God has given to us, I think, is the the gift that we have to have Libby Vincent come and speak to us God's word, to preach to us God's word on occasion, as often as I can get her to come in. And we get to honor 
God by honoring her by listening with amazing grace and humility. Just like we would with any speaker. And that applies to men toward men. It applies to women toward men. It applies to women toward women. And it applies to men toward women. Because the gospel frees us to honor. And that is an honor to God in his church. Jesus, I pray for us today. I'm uh, so grateful, Lord, for the fact that you have this amazing love for us and you invite us into your church, you invite us into your family, you free us from shame. God, I pray that we would, I pray that we would hear that and learn that. I pray that I would learn it. Lord, how many times do I think that I'm not worth what you say I'm worth? And how many times do my friends in the room here believe that they are not worth what you say they're worth? And I know that we're saying almost, I know we stumble and mess up. Of course we do. But I pray that you would help us with all the grace you have to give. That you would help us to grasp the value that you have placed on our lives. The worth that you have built into us. And that you would shape this place and you would shape, more importantly, this group of people to be a people of high honor. Knowing that every time we honor one another, we honor you. Lord, would you lead us and be honored among us for your glory and for the sake of Jesus. Amen.